It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host Hannah Feldman. David Feldman is actually out making some money today. So we've got Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Steve. And, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello to everybody, especially our listeners. In our continued coverage of the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict, today we welcome co-founder and president of the Arab American Institute, James Zogby. Mr. Zogby has written extensively about issues in the Middle East, particularly how the Arab world views American intervention in their affairs. He's also managing director of Zogby Research Services, a firm that has conducted groundbreaking surveys across the Middle East. We look forward to talking to Mr. Zogby about the latest developments as well as the history of what's going on in that region. Then in the second half of the show, we're going to pivot to a different subject. It's one of our favorite, least favorite things, nuclear power. We're going to welcome back No Nukes advocate Harvey Wasserman, a longtime fellow traveler with Ralph and the No Nukes movement. Today, he's going to bring us up to date on the supposed decommissioning of the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor in Central California. One issue at the core of the nuclear power debate is embrittlement, which is just a wonky way of saying cracking. Mr. Wasserman maintains that embrittlement, quote, may seem obscure, but it's at the center of whether a melting atomic reactor will calmly cool down or explode in a violent planetary apocalypse. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's hear about the latest developments in the Middle East. Hannah? James Zogby is co-founder and president of the Arab American Institute, and he is featured frequently on national and international media as an expert on Middle East affairs. Since 1992, he's written a weekly column, Washington Watch, that is published in 12 countries. He's the author of several books, including Looking at Iran, The Rise and Fall of Iran in Arab Public Opinion, The Tumultuous Decade, Arab, Turkish, and Iranian Public Opinion, 2010 to 2019, Arab Voices, What They're Saying to Us and Why It Matters, and Palestinians, The Invisible Victims. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, James Zogby. Thank you. Welcome indeed, Jim. You've been a longtime spokesperson for the Arab American community and for the national interest of the United States in the Middle East area. And you always provide context for things that are going on. And while mm-hmm. the attention is properly focused on the massive convulsions now over there, I want to start the program by quoting a statement from the founder of Israel, David Ben-Gurion. The early founders coming off the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews, were in no mood, you know, to respond to the indigenous rights of the Palestinian people. They they wanted a state, and they wanted a homeland. And David Ben-Gurion was very candid about what happened. And in the book called The Jewish Paradox by Nahum Goldman, who was head of the World Zionist Organization, that came out in 1978, He quotes David Ben-Gurion as follows, and this is very, very important, listeners, to understand the historical context of what's going on now. Here's David Ben-Gurion's quote. If I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true. God promised it to us. But how could that interest them? 
our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz. But was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and we have stolen their country. Why would they accept that? End quote. That's by David Ben-Gurion. And subsequent Israeli leaders have said that if they were Palestinians, they would be involved in the resistance as well, including Ehud Barak, who was a former prime minister of Israel and a fighter in the Israeli army. So I want to ask you, Jim, how do you provide the context to positions taken by members of Congress and Joe Biden and others so they don't just dehumanize Palestinians and focus entirely on Israel, which is now a military, economic, and technological superpower and has been described by its generals as being the most secure time in Israeli history until uh, October 6th, the failed intelligence system. How do you deal with members of Congress who are readying a huge financial package, billions of dollars, to assist Israel, which has a, a greater social safety net than we do in the U.S., and is a very modern, prosperous country, and they're going to try to get this through Congress. How do you provide the context? Well, look, thank you, Ralph, for the opportunity to talk to folks today. I, I had some meetings with White House officials last week, and I tried to do exactly what you're saying. I I started with, of course, that what happened on October 7th was deplorable, condemnable, outrageous, barbaric. I mean, you can use all the words that you can come up with in the English language, and they still don't describe the horror of what happened to Jewish people on that day. I said, and it evoked for Jews around the world the trauma of the Holocaust, which they have come to see as self-definitional because it describes their vulnerability and insecurity. At the same time, what Israel has been doing before October 7th, and most certainly what they've been doing since up till the present day, evokes for Palestinians the trauma of the Nakba, the feeling of expulsion, of the vulnerability that we were in control of our own land, we are no longer, and we are not controllers of our destiny, even of our history, which is being rewritten by folks in the West to describe them as the aggressor instead of as the victim historically. So I said that. I got rebuked by one at the White House who said, I am tired of hearing this whataboutism and trying to equate the two and say Israel suffered but. And I stopped him because I was a little upset. And I said, I never said but. What I said was, there are two narratives, and we have to understand both. There's Israeli trauma and Jewish trauma, and there's Palestinian and Arab trauma. Both are real, because there are two groups of humanity who each have histories. When we adopt one and ignore the other, then we end up creating the kind of torment that Palestinians have been living with. Biden is in Israel right now, and listening to his rhetoric can only help say to uh, Palestinians hear it and they say, he doesn't care about us. He doesn't even see us as real people. This was a love fest for Israel with Palestinians literally being written out of history, written out of the present day, written out of the, the legacy of suffering that they've endured, that I can't even imagine the thinking or the lack of thinking that went into sending him on this trip today, especially when you have across the Arab world, 
riots in front of American embassies and hatred being reignited, not only toward Israel, but toward the United States, because we are the enablers and the, 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 the funders and the supporters and the cheerleaders and coat holders for one side in what has been historically a very bloody and misunderstood conflict. And it, it's, you know, look, I've been through this myself, as, as you have as well, for decades now. I mean, I, all this did was remind me of 67, certainly remind me of 82, when the Israelis marched up to Beirut and did what they did. And, and then there was after that, the intifada and how they responded to it. And then the invasions of Gaza, the, the attacks on Gaza in 2008 and 10 and 12 and 14 and 21 and, and and then 2006 when they demolished Lebanon's infrastructure because they were going to end once and for all Hezbollah. They ended up making Hezbollah stronger. And so the sort of the PTSD of having been through this and trying to remind people in Congress that this does not make Israel more secure. Taking massive amounts of Palestinian lives evacuating them, forcing them to flee from their homes, murdering them from the air, doesn't make them more secure. At the end of the day, when the dust settles and the tears dry, you're going to have a whole lot more dead people, a whole lot more anger, a whole lot more frustration, and nothing else will change in Gaza or in the West Bank, where Israelis are running over Palestinians, trying to evict them from their homes and villages, and they're doing it. So there is this history. It has to be understood. I just want to add one quote to Ben-Gurion. He implemented a plan during 48 that was a deliberate plan to evict Palestinians from the areas that Israel wanted to take from them, areas that had not been given to Israel in the UN partition plan. He said that's what they did. They implemented this plan. At the end of it, he celebrated what he called a double miracle. In Israel, he said that was larger and had less Arabs. And so it was it was something that they've celebrated. And these people in Gaza, 80 percent of the population of Gaza are refugees. And they have this as their history, as their legacy, that they are families of people who were expelled from their homes, and now they're being expelled one more time. Well, let's provide more history here. We're talking with Jim Zogby, who is the founder of the Arab American Institute. In 1948, when the UN essentially established the State of Israel in the partition decision, Palestine was formerly a British mandate. It was under control of the British, and Israeli partisans attacked British installations, blew up part of the King David Hotel, and that's all part of the history. But the Palestinians now, five million of them are living in the West Bank and Gaza, maybe closer to six million, and they're living in only 22% of the original Palestine Mm -hmm. area. So the Palestine Authority has conceded that Israel is going to control 78%. They have, out of the Oslo Accords, recognized Israel's right to exist. The question is whether Israel recognizes the Palestinians' right to exist. And in Congress, which is the big backer of Israeli militarism, they keep saying Israel has a right to defend itself. But they never say the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves, and they're innocent casualty tolls of deaths, injuries, diseases from the deprivation and the occupation and property destruction are hundreds of times greater than the loss of innocent Israeli life, hundreds Mm -hmm. of times greater over the decades. 
And this raises the question of bigotry and hatred on Capitol Hill and refusal to disavow high Israeli official racist comments, totally genocidal comments over the years that are part of the historical record. You have lectured on the other anti-Semitism before an Israeli university some years ago. Mm -hmm. Could you describe the other anti-Semitism? Because this is an important aspect of the dialogue here. Mm -hmm. Any members of Congress who dare speak on behalf of Palestinian rights are accused of anti-Semitism immediately. So can you discuss this? Because you've had many conversations with Israelis over the years, and you know quite a bit about the other anti-Semitism. What we have is a blindness toward an entire people. There is the other anti-Semitism. There's the bigotry that grew up in the West during the same period that anti-Semitism flourished, the rise of the nation state, the Jew was seen as the threat from within, and the Arab and the Muslim were viewed as the threat from without. And both were caricatured in similar ways. Big noses, bloodthirsty, they controlled our wealth and their, their, their wealth was ill-gotten because it really belonged to us. They lusted after our women, etc. I mean, they were portrayed in the most horrific fashions, both of them. We rightly condemned one, we ignored the other. The situation with Palestinians is a little different. They both have to endure the broader bigotry of the Arab world. But more importantly, as I wrote in the book, The Invisible Victims, they have literally been written out of the story. They don't exist in the consciousness of most Americans. The film, The Exodus, when it was made, was a deliberate piece of Israeli propaganda, Hasbara. It was funded to be that. They put the cowboy and Indian motif on the Israelis versus the Palestinians so that the Israelis were the, the sweet young people, the, the young folks trying to carve out a home for themselves on the frontier and being blocked by these savages who were trying to destroy them, who didn't understand their yearning for freedom and a place to, to just be able to be. And the Palestinians were, were less than human. They became an objectified problem the way Indians were in the lore of the West as it was conveyed in film and in popular culture here in the States. And the Israelis actually fueled it. Founders of the Zionist movement portrayed themselves as a civilizing culture going against the uncivilized East. It was, as one of them said, a conflict between barbarism and humanity. We are, Max Nordau, one of the founders of the movement said, we are the product of the West, the civilized West. They're the product of the uncivilized East. And they were going to not just bring civilization, but like the cowboys, like the pioneers and the, the Indians, they were going to clear the savages from the frontier like trees so that the people could survive. That was the Ben-Gurion, less Arabs, more, more land argument. And so Palestinians in the, in the language of the West literally became invisible as human beings. We cry for the Jewish suffering. We can't even speak about the Palestinian suffering because they're not real people to us. They don't exist. There are no Palestinian mothers or, or grandmothers. One Israeli minister, Ayelet Shakid, said that Palestinians are snakes and their mothers are the bearers of snakes and vermin, and so we needed to kill them, that they were all the same. That sense of dehumanizing, of making other, an entire people, and listening to the rhetoric coming from the Israeli generals today, 
about Gaza, it's as if there's no real people there, no real human beings there. We'll level the place. This is the home of 2.3 million people. We'll evict them from the north, and Gaza, when it's over, will be smaller and have less Arabs from Ben-Gurion. But that's what the foreign minister was saying today. They want to expel them to Egypt and not let them back. That sense of their, they don't really exist as people. If what was being said about Palestinians were being said about Jews or any other people, we would rightly identify it as bigotry. We don't even pay attention to the fact that these are ministers, high-level ministers in the government. Ben What's his name? Netanyahu gave a speech about the forces of light versus the forces of darkness, civilization confronting barbarism. He gave that just yesterday in the Knesset. And, and, and Biden is sitting with him today. We understand your people. We understand the suffering even. Of course we understand the suffering, but the cries of the Jewish people cannot drown out the cries of the Palestinian people. And yet that's what we've done. And Joe Biden is over there while the Israelis have been destroying and bombing yeah. schools, apartment buildings, homes, electricity networks, water mains, hospitals, clinics, and well-marked from the roof, United Nations relief agencies that have been there for years, having taken the lives of about 14 so far UN staff there. And the UN seems helpless here. Give us a little more context. There was a resolution 242 passed by the UN mm -hmm. years ago. What is it and how has it been treated by the United States and Israel? It was a resolution calling for an end of the conflict. And basically, as it's been sort of put into a slogan, it created the formula of land for peace, that Israel could not continue to occupy militarily land seized in war, that it was called for the removal of the occupation, basically. And the U.S. supported it. It has been, as we say, honored more in the breach than in the observance. It's never been implemented. It was in every U.S. document up to Reagan, support for 242 and the formula of land for peace. That's been now ignored. And so if Israel were to surrender land, it would be as a gift. As Netanyahu says, they're asking us to do painful things. The painful thing being give them back their land. I, I remember when I met with Clinton after Camp David, he called me into the Oval Office to say, Barack made an offer. I need to get Arafat to counter, give me another offer. And I said, I've heard about Barack's offer. He's offering a percent of the territories occupied in 67. And he said, yeah, and the only offer Arafat keeps telling me is, he talks about 22%. What's that about? I said, Mr. President, you have to know the 22% is what's left of Palestine after Israel is the 78% of Palestine. He wants that back. And he said, well, Barack's offering part of that. And I said, he doesn't want part of it. He wants it. That's, I said, you don't understand that for that generation of Palestinians, accepting Israel's 78% and writing off their rights in that 78%, that's a big deal. And offering them 90% of the 22% the so that Israel can keep the settlements that literally still carve the, the West Bank up into, into pieces or keep the Jordan Valley so that they don't have access to the outside world except through Israeli security. That's not peace. He didn't get it at all. He just didn't get it at all. And I don't think people here get it because basically it's Israel, Israeli people versus the Palestine problem. And the solution is, how do we solve this pesky problem so that Israeli people can have freedom? It's not 
how do we deal with Palestinian humanity and their legitimate concerns as a real people who've suffered dispossession? Well, let's talk about the current situation that focuses on Hamas's attack and the mm-hmm. counterattack by Israel, powerful air force, navy, land forces, mm-hmm. massing. Hamas was a tiny religious organization, which was fostered into a more powerful organization by the United States and Israel. Mm-hmm. They thought that if they built up a religious organization, it would undermine the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. And once again, just as in Afghanistan, we could create our own adversaries mm-hmm. and blundering back and forth. Now, Hamas is now being focused on, but the focus should be on the order by the Israeli defense minister and the energy minister who collectively ordered the soldiers and the military with the following words in the strike against Gaza. Quote, no power, no electricity, no food, no water, no gas. Mm -hmm. We are fighting human animals, end quotes. Mm -hmm. Those are the orders given. Mm -hmm. And as Bruce Fine, an international law practitioner, said in our program last week, this meets the definition of genocide. And he said, I'm Mm -hmm. quoting Bruce, the genocide convention born of the Holocaust defines the crime of genocide in Article 2C to include, quote, deliberately inflicting on a national, ethnic, and racial or religious group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, end quote. Mm-hmm. And when you cut off water, food, electricity, fuel, you're condemning everybody, children, mm-hmm. babies, mm-hmm. women, men, to collective destruction. What is going on with a few of the progressives in Congress, and what do you see happening in the next few weeks? Ralph, here's the thing. If you don't see Palestinians as real people, as people just as equal as Jewish people, even though Biden says the equal worth of both Israeli and Palestinian lives, they repeat that line ad nauseum, but do nothing about it. But if that's the way, if you don't see them as real people, then cutting off water, power, fuel, forcing them to be evicted doesn't matter to you. Imagine if that same thing were happening to Jews. Imagine if that same thing were happening to another people with whom we identify as as human beings. But if you don't identify Palestinians as real people, then what the hell? It doesn't matter. It's just a tactic the Israelis are doing to become more secure. And so what the reaction will be in Congress is, leave me alone. I got no time for this. Or it'll be, hey, uh, I'm really with you guys but I can't do anything about it because, you know, I got to run for office in November next year and I got to protect myself because, you know, they'll come after me. That's what you get. Either ignored completely because they don't care or, hey, I'm really with you guys, but they remind me of the way the Pope used to appoint cardinals during the the Soviet Union. Cardinals behind the Iron Curtain, he'd appoint them in his heart because he didn't want to reveal their name. So I have this club in my heart of members of Congress who... I'm really with you guys, but, and that's, that's as good as nothing. I got a call from somebody at the White House today saying, he sounded like, remember Digger O'Dell on the old Life of Riley show, the sonorous funeral director? He said, I just want you to know that many of us here share your concern and we're deeply upset that you're upset. And I just want you to know that we're, we understand how you feel. It's like, I don't care if you understand how I feel. What I care about is, are you going to do something? to change the situation. And they're not because they're concerned about the politics of it. That's why 
That's why they're not doing anything. Well, according to the New York Times, the Israeli Air Force using U.S. fighters and bombs mm-hmm. dropped 6,000 bombs on this tiny enclave the size of Philadelphia mm-hmm. in area in the first week, which is more mm-hmm. than the U.S. dropped in Afghanistan after 9-11 in a year. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing here with tremendous physical destruction, but also the mental damage mm-hmm. to these little kids and these children. They cut off electricity and everything. People in hospitals are on ventilators and incubators of babies. And when all this is put forward, the Israeli government says it's all Hamas fault. Brent Stevens writes an op-ed in the New York Times, just says it's all Hamas's fault. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> there's never any admission of genocidal activity in Gaza, never any admission of overproportionality, of collective punishment, which is illegal under international law. So we're dealing here with a situation enabled by the United States, funded by the U.S. taxpayer. The taxpayer is going to be, U.S. taxpayer is going to be given the bill from Netanyahu for this, and Senator Schumer is preparing it, a legislation as the first installment. What do you want the American people to be doing here? And, and what groups in the United States are really standing up? Well, there are progressive groups in the Jewish community that are great. They've really taken a lot on in leadership on this. There also are, in the black community, folks who have come to identify so strongly with this issue, they've also been important in the lead. We have support from the churches. We have support from peace groups. We have support from a lot of the civil rights groups, except for some of the historic civil rights groups. They've been far less uh, sympathetic. Historically, they've been less sympathetic. But there is a movement that is not going to change. I mean, people said in the beginning, oh, this is going to kill the progressive support for Palestine. Far from it. Far from it. The Israeli behavior will only reinforce that mood among progressives where, as you just polled Democrats, period, the percent of Democrats who are sympathetic to Palestinians is about 11, 12 points higher than the percentage of Democrats who support Israel. It's different on the Republican side because everything's different on the Republican side. But there is this very strong support that I think needs to be understood as playing a role in the demonstrations we're seeing around the country. And it will grow It'll grow over time. They've come to know Palestinian students on campuses. They've come to know Palestinians in the community. They've come to have a feeling about this issue that is radically different than the, the way Congress behaves, which is why we're seeing large numbers of progressives now running for office and making Palestine an issue, driving the pro-Israel groups a bit crazy, because given what's happening on campuses and given what's happening in the electoral arena, APEC starts raising tens of millions of dollars to defame, smear, and defeat people like Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush and, and Summer Lee, et cetera. You also have this effort to pass legislation in states banning the BDS movement and penalizing people for supporting boycotting Israel, and now expanding the definition of anti-Semitism to include legitimate criticism of Israel, which is now being used on college campuses to try to silence the debate. So they can't win the debate. What they have to try to do is, is silence the debate. That's not going to make it go away, and it's not certainly not going to make more friends for Israel at the end of the day.
Well, the moral courage of Israeli human rights groups, especially in this kind of atmosphere, is really so commendable. And, and the moral courage of American Jews on this Jewish Voice for Peace had a major demonstration at the White House and is part of a major demonstration before Congress this week. Let's go to the most ticklish issue at all here. Given the pending negotiations of the U.S. with Saudi Arabia and others, given the indifference to the Palestinian issue by Israelis, as Gideon Levy has written in Haaretz, the young generation of Israelis hardly gave a thought as they build their technological economy, hardly give a thought to what's going on a few miles away in the West Bank and Gaza. What do you think was in the minds of Hamas in the attack on October 6th? What was the strategic and tactical goal, and what were they most fearful of if they didn't raise the Palestinian issue in the brutal way that they did? I'm going to be very honest with you. I've written about this because I cannot understand what was in their minds. They had to know what would happen the day after. And if they didn't know what, what happened the day after, then in addition to being brutal, they were also stupid. To me, there was no strategy here. There was no sense that we do this and then that will happen and this will happen and here's the logical outcome. I mean, despite the fact that he himself violated it by going into Iraq, the Powell Doctrine, to me, makes sense. I don't believe you ever go to war, but if you go to war, Powell said, you have to know the consequences. You have to know the terms of it. You have to know have an exit strategy. You have to have a sense of how this is going to contribute to victory, and you have to be able to define victory. I can't imagine that Hamas had any sense of any of that when they did what they did. I think they struck out blindly to murder people and without paying attention to what would happen to their own people afterwards. That's the first part. The second part is that I don't think Israelis, the leadership, adhere to the Powell Doctrine either, because their behavior in the last several days since this attack has demonstrated that all they wanted to do was kill as many people as possible, create fear, panic, evict people from their homes. And the outcome is that we're going to be right back where we started with a lot more dead people, a lot more angry people. The other party who I don't think had any sense of, of adherence to any doctrine is the United States. Joe Biden, I'm sure, doesn't understand, but there had to be people in the administration who said, Mr. President, we can't come out with full-throated support for Israel and what they're doing. We can say, yes, this was terrible what happened, and we condemn it, and we support your right to defend yourself, but you can't defend yourself in a way that takes the lives of thousands of innocent people as they're now doing, and we will not support that, and so you better be careful what you do. We didn't do that. Instead, we just said, go get them, guys. We're not going to offer any criticism, and the result is, is that Everybody in this is losing. The Palestinians are losing, the Israelis are losing, and ultimately the United States is losing, as we can see on the streets across the Arab world. There's also an internal issue. Israel is very divided over the usurpation of mm -hmm. the jurisdiction of the judiciary. Right. Netanyahu was in hot water, and a, a very strong pro-Zionist American just went to Israel is raising the question, why did it take five or six hours before the Israeli military began responding to the assault on October 6th. Because 75% of the Israeli military was in the West Bank protecting settlers and settlements. That's why. That's why. Because they were brutalizing the West Bank. That's why. And, you know, it was a stupid move on the part of Hamas, but they confronted a brutal enemy who was willing to pay any price at all 
to kill as many people as they could in order to exact a toll on Palestinians. The problem is the United States did nothing to restrain Israel. In fact, State Department issued two statements, one calling for restraint, one calling for protection of civilians, and calling for a ceasefire. And both statements were taken off the website within hours and replaced with, we support Israel's right to do anything it needs to defend its own people. That was just and it's a, criminal. It, and then now there's verbal censorship at the State Department. Before yeah, we go yeah. to Steve and the questions, tell us about this internal memorandum that leaked to the press about what phrases should not be used by the State Department, whose charter 200 years ago was diplomacy and customs, not mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they issued a statement banning the use of words like restraint or ceasefire and you get what you get. You, what you get is unrestrained Israel doing the worst it possibly can to make life as miserable as possible for, for Palestinians and committing, as you suggest, as you say, genocide, which is what is happening. Which, of course, uh, involves U.S. as a co-belligerent, even under we're, international we're, law. We're an accomplice. We're an accomplice to war crimes. And the last point I want to run by you, Jim, is in 2014, when there was another war in Gaza, with Israel, there was a five-day truce. Mm -hmm. And the question is, can there be a temporary truce now to negotiate the release of the hostages controlled by Hamas now in tunnels in Gaza and the prisoners in Israeli jails who have been imprisoned for years without due process or even charges, including youngsters? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the chance of that just to temper the process for a few days? What do you think Joe that, Biden should come back to the U.S. with? That has been proposed and it has been rejected by the U.S. government as an approach. They've completely rejected it. And they are reaping what they sow. And I am, I mean, I just can't tell you how frustrating it is to deal with this administration. Uh, we had more of an opportunity, more of a sense that people were listening, even in the Bush years. I can't say Trump. But this, this administration has been completely deaf to any, any proposals that went differently than what the president is currently doing, which is offering complete, unquestioning support for Israel. And what they tell me is that he's quietly telling Netanyahu things that, that are critical. Netanyahu never responds to quiet diplomacy. They pocket this. They, they say, good. Oh, thank you very much. Good. And then they ignore it. If it's not public, it might not, might as well not be being done. They should know that by well, now, it, but they don't. There's a risk of a wider war here. If the Israelis begin provoking areas outside, they've been bombing, mm -hmm. by their own estimates, hundreds of times in Syria. Mm -hmm. Just a few days ago, they bombed the International Civilian Airport in Damascus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if there's a wider war here, the U.S. is going to get involved in it. Yeah, we have two warships off the coast, and we have 2,000 Marines on the way. And I'm wondering to myself, what the hell are they thinking? Don't they remember what happened in Beirut, you know, after the 82 invasion when we got hundreds of Marines killed? Don't they remember Iraq? Is that too distant for them to remember the blunder we made? We should never get involved in a war in a part of the world whose history we don't understand, whose culture we don't understand, and whose grievances against America we don't understand. It's mind-numbing 
Ralph, that after all this time, I'm dealing with people at the White House who couldn't find some of these countries on the map before they got the job five years ago. And they're making policy decisions about a part of the world that we've messed up for decades. And they're messing it and up US, even worse. And U.S. military families, as they suffered in Iraq and Afghanistan, and of course, mm-hmm. civilian deaths in Iraq were mm-hmm. far, far greater than U.S. soldier deaths by far. Mm-hmm. A million Iraqis mm-hmm. were killed, at least, by mm-hmm. Bush and Cheney's criminal war of invasion there. But you have Hillary Clinton, for example, who voted for the Iraq war afterwards. She said it was a mistake. That's the way they treat millions of casualties in these Arab countries that are invaded by the U.S. as a mistake. So with all that, we're looking for diplomacy. We're looking for the American people to say stop the way they did when Obama asked the Congress to send U.S. soldiers in Syria. 95% of the comments coming into Congress from Republican Democrat voters said, stop. And that seems to be the only hope when they read Mm -hmm. the tea leaves in public opinion in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Steve. Mr. Zogby, talk to me about the Anti-Defamation League as a source of information for Americans. What would your assessment of them be? Number one, their history has been betrayed by their attitude over the last several decades. They've gone from being an anti-defamation league that was always on the right, I mean, on the right wing, to a, a group that has almost become solely focused on, on Israel and on defaming people who are critical of Israel. They've even conflated criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, and they've sought to silence groups And they've tarnished groups like Jewish Voice for Peace that Ralph just mentioned as anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, even though they're Jewish. They've done the same with Black Lives Matter. They've done the same with student groups on campuses and other groups as well. And when it comes even to the Arab community, I mean, they are famous for in the 80s, for example, they had a spy on the West Coast who was working undercover in Arab groups and providing documents to the FBI about these groups and included people like former Congressman Pete McCloskey, who was a congressman at the time, and people who I knew out there who were, there was no one who was involved in any terrorist activity. They were Arab American organizers and Arab American community activists and business leaders. And finally, there was a lawsuit against the ADL, which Pete McCloskey and his the group who were co-defendants with him, one, because the ADL had turned its mission into a spying and defaming Arab Americans. And that's a lot of what they do these days. And I am, you know, obviously really distressed at it because they still have the name legacy of, oh my God, it's the ADL. Well, they defend Jewish people against anti-Semitism. But what they do, have they've become one of the main proponents of anti-Arab bigotry and anti-Arab sentiment by accusing us when we criticize Israel, of of being an anti-Semite, which we're not. And we're not because we know that anti-Semitism means hatred of the Jewish people and hatred of groups because they are Jewish and because there are somehow felt to be internal qualities that are shared by all Jews that characterize them. And it can be negative or positive. I mean, somebody who says, well, Jews are, are, are cheats or Jews are money grubbers or Jews are this, that's bigotry. But those like Trump who say, yeah, Jews are really good with money. That's also bigotry and anti-Semitism. Finding in any case, whether you're talking about Arabs, talking about Jews, talking about Chinese, what any behavior that 
treats another people as if, number one, they're all the same and they have internal or innate qualities that define them and that are immutable, that can't be changed because they're Jews or they're Arabs and you know what they're like. That's bigotry. And the ADL has fallen into that trap because what they've done is they have literally portrayed every Arab American who is a defender of Palestinians as a bigot, which is itself a form of bigotry because they put an entire community at risk. Well, we're out of time. We've been talking with Jim Zogby, the founder of the Arab American Institute. Jim, is there any last minute point you want to make to our listeners? A lot of the questions that have been asked, Ralph, by you and, and, uh, and Hannah in particular, I deal with in the book, the Palestinians, the Invisible Victims. And I'd sure like to send people a copy if they want to write to me at jzogby at aaiusa.org or DM me on Twitter. At, it's at jjz1600. Uh, Arab, the Invisible Victims, I wrote it back in 78, and folks at Mondo Weiss looked at it a few years back and said, this book ought to be published today. It's exactly relevant to the conversation today. I looked at it and said, it was great. So we, we actually reissued it. It's a very short book, but it traces the history of Zionism and the oppression of Palestinians and how the two were connected. And give that contact number slowly once more. It's J-Z-O-G-B-Y at A-A-I-U-S-A dot org, or they can DM me on Twitter at J-J-Z 1600 Thank you very much, Jim Zogby. I will send a copy. Thanks. We've been speaking with James Zogby. We have a link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Harvey Wasserman joins us to talk about the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime report on Morning Minute for Friday, October 20, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Trade Commission are cracking down on junk fees. Junk fees are hidden surprise fees that companies sneak into customer bills, increasing costs and stifling competition. Junk fees cost American families tens of billions of dollars each year. Junk fees may take many forms, including fees for late penalties, overdrafts, returns, using an out-of-network ATM, money transfers, inactivity, and more. With overdraft fees, a cup of coffee can go from $3 to $35. When an individual needs help, they may even be charged a fee for speaking to a real person. And some companies charge you to pay your bill by phone or other methods. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with Hannah Feldman and Ralph. Could contract law help activists prevent a nuclear disaster in Diablo Canyon? Hannah? Harvey Wasserman is a journalist, author, democracy activist, and advocate for renewable energy. Mr. Wasserman is the author of Solartopia, Our Green-Powered Earth, and The People's Spiral of U.S. History. He has written and researched atomic energy since 1973, and co-authored Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Energy. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Harvey Wasserman. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you and to Ralph. Listeners should know that Harvey Wasserman is one of the kind. There's no way to fully describe the wide array of injustices 
that he has not demonstrated against, picketed against, organized against all over the United States and written about. In fact, in his book, The People Spiral in U.S. History, Howard Zinn, who wrote his own People's History of the U.S., said, quote, Harvey Wasserman constantly provokes us and educates us, sometimes outrages us, often inspires us. He is always delightfully readable, end quote. But your concern right now is the increasing brittlement of U.S. nuclear plants all over the country. That's aging U.S. nuclear plants that could lead not just to a nuclear disaster in traditional ways, like breaking through the containment and releasing radioactivity, but actually lead to an explosion. And your focus is on the Diablo Canyon, two nuclear plants in California, the only nuclear plants operating that are left in California, a state predicted to have 100 nuclear plants by the year 2000. Obviously, that never happened. So tell us the immediate problem of extending the operating life of the Diablo Canyon plants, which were slated to close down by Governor Newsom and his protection of this criminally negligent giant utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, in California. Yeah, thank you for that, Ralph. And we really are in crisis mode on a number of fronts here. There are 94 reactors left in the United States, commercial reactors. They are instruments of global warming and mass suicide. They operate at 570 degrees Fahrenheit every day. I'd like someone to tell me how you cool the planet with a radioactive fire that burns at 570 degrees Fahrenheit. They also emit carbon, especially carbon-14, and a lot of carbon in the, in the nuclear fuel cycle. But the bottom line here is that all these old reactors are embrittled. Embrittlement is a process that occurs when a piece of metal is exposed for decades to heat, pressure, and radiation, which all the internal components of nuclear power plants are subjected to. And with embrittlement, you have a situation where, if God forbid, there's an accident, and they have to pour in water to cool the radioactive chain reaction going on. The embrittled reactor core will shatter. And if, a God forbid, the a reactor core shatters, you will have steam, hydrogen, and nuclear explosions, as we've seen at, at Chernobyl and Fukushima. It could not be more serious. And the reactors at the Abu Canyon, there's two of them there, and <clears throat> they opened in the 1980s despite 10,000 people being arrested, including me. I spent three lovely nights in the San Luis Obispo County Jail. I highly recommend it. But we tried to stop them from going online. They operated since the mid-1980s. In 2016, a deal was signed to, to shut them down and to phase them out. And Gavin Newsom was lieutenant governor at the time, and he signed that deal. And last year, he stabbed us in the back. And Ralph, we can never, ever trust Gavin Newsom for anything, because this, what he's doing now is attempting to keep open these two reactors, despite the fact that they're deeply flawed internally and surrounded by and literally a dozen earthquake faults. And the NRC's own inspector has said that the Abel Canyon cannot withstand a likely earthquake. So we are building a state and a nationwide movement to keep this, these two old reactors shut. Right now, Diablo Unit 1 is actually shut for refueling. We want it never to reopen. Newsom is refusing to allow us a public inspection. They are PG&E, which is a 
convicted criminal of more than 90 manslaughter counts because they blew up a pipe in San Bruno and incinerated eight human beings. And then they burned down most of northern, much of northern California, killing over 80 people. Well, this is a criminal operation, Ralph. And they are continuing to be allowed to operate these two nuclear plants that, that could really cause an apocalyptic re release of radiation. And one thing we have to understand is that all the nuclear plants in the United States today are essentially military facilities. The idea that they that no nuclear plant in the United States can compete now with wind and solar. In California, we get very substantially more electricity from rooftop solar than we do from Diablo Canyon. There are 1,500 people working at Diablo Canyon. There are 70,000 people installing solar panels in California. There's only one explanation why they're continuing to operate these two reactors and all the other reactors in the United States. And that's because the commercial reactor industry is now the infrastructure of the nuclear weapons industry. If you like nuclear power, you love nuclear weapons. They are, they are joined at the hip, these two industries. And, th and that's why the federal government keeps intervening to keep these old reactors shut when they are incredibly dangerous. And people need to write the mothersforpeace.org, mothersforpeace.org, which is the principal operation opposing Diablo Canyon. But Ralph, this could not be more serious. These two reactors are upwind of the entire United States. An accident at Diablo Canyon could send, within four hours, send a, a, an apocalyptic radioactive cloud into Los Angeles, into the Central Valley, where we get our fruits and vegetables for the, over the winter, and into the Bay Area. The stakes could not be higher. And again, th these are military facilities masquerading as fighters of global warming, which is absolutely ridiculous. You pioneered this movement. I was with you in 1973 and four at the critical mass conferences in D.C. And we've done tremendous work, Ralph. In that year, 74, Richard Nixon said there'd be a thousand nuclear reactors in the United States by the year 2000. In the year 2000, there were 104. Now we're down to 94, but all these reactors are very old, very dangerous, and they need to shut as soon as possible. As you know, the two Indian Point reactors 30 miles north of Manhattan have been shut down, and Governor Andrew Cuomo was insistent that that be done. And New York's not suffering from an electricity shortage. There's huge areas of conservation of electricity, by the way, that will give us far more electric power by saving yeah. megawatts instead of building megawatts nuclear power style. Just to be specific, Harvey, give us the timeline. You've got two reactors at Diablo Canyon near an earthquake zone. Are they operating one now? And when were they supposed to be closed? What year? And what year has Governor Newsom given them as an extension? And by the way, further subsidized them. Well, yes, yeah, so the state of California is kicking in $1.1 billion to keep these reactors open. It's absolutely insane. And another billion for $1.4 billion coming from the federal government. The only reason they're doing this, Ralph, is for nuclear weapons. The 40-year license on the two reactors at Diablo was supposed to expire in 24 and 25. 
In other words, in the next two years. And the deal that was cut with the state of California, the assembly, the utilities company itself, the regulators, the unions, the local governments and the environmental groups in 2016 said that these two reactors would shut next year in 24 and the year after in 25. Newsom signed that deal and suddenly he waltzed in last year and, and is, is abrogating the deal. It's outrageous and completely illegal, Ralph. They are breaking the law 40 different ways from Sunday. We're in federal court now and trying to get the NRC to at least inspect these reactors. They don't want to inspect them. They don't want the public to know how bad internally they are. And I got to tell you, the great miracle since the critical mass conferences that you did way back when is the rise of renewables. Renewable energy, wind and solar, along with battery technology, which is about to make a major breakthrough, switching from lithium to sodium, these technologies have advanced so much faster and so much more effectively than anybody thought was possible. There is absolutely no doubt that we can convert the entire global economy to renewables, wind, solar, batteries, efficiency, all of that stuff in a very rapid period of time. And what's standing in our way is nuclear power and fossil fuels. Nuclear power completely screws up the grid. It does it all the time in California. They're running Diablo Canyon. Right now they're refueling, but when they're running Diablo Canyon, the electricity from the nuclear plant takes up the space on the grid that could be going to far cheaper wind and solar. It's outrageous. Everything we envisioned 50 years ago has come true in terms of the benefits of wind and solar. What you're saying has been said many times on our program by the late David Freeman, who was the yes. head of the Tennessee Valley Authority, as well as utilities in Sacramento and Los Angeles. Harvey, I want you to explain to our listeners the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Well, what's happened is, Ralph, that we have successfully shut many of the key pieces of the nuclear weapons infrastructure. Rocky Flats, you know, Hanford, Fernald, Ashtabula, many of the, the, our, our activism against nuclear weapons has been extremely effective. So now what they're doing, the government's putting all its eggs in the basket at Portsmouth in southern Ohio. With They want to expand uranium enrichment and do all sorts of things to make plutonium available and enrich uranium for these depleted uranium weapons. And how you fuel, H-A-L-E-U, which is supposed to be for these ridiculous new reactors that are never going to get built. And they're using the spent, they're going to use the spent fuel and other pieces of the infrastructure for the commercial atomic reactors. And so the commercial atomic reactors are now the new infrastructure for the atomic weapons industry. And I'll give you a very clear picture. The prime minister of France, Macron, has very explicitly said that without nuclear power, you don't have nuclear weapons. And without nuclear weapons, you don't have nuclear power. The first solar panels were invented at Bell Labs in 53 and 54. If we had gone that route instead of the nuclear route, we would not have a global warming problem. We would be infinitely richer. We would be fully employed because renewables employ way, way, way more people than nuclear power or fossil fuels. There are more people working in California on solar alone in California than there are digging coal in the whole United States. You want people to connect with mothersforpeace.org, and how can they connect? In what way? Well, the mothers have a great website. They've been involved. They've been active for fifty years, and they're a great group. They're right there in San Luis Obispo. You can also contact me at solartopia.org, mothersforpeace.org, M-O-T-H-E-R-S-F-O-R-P-E-A-C-E. That's one word, 
www.ralphmiller.org, and they are doing the legal intervention. Ralph, if we covered every rooftop, every usable rooftop in the United States with solar and did nothing else, we could power this country uh, twice over. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're out of time. Thank you very much, Harvey Wasserman, author of the book, The People's Spiral in U.S. History, and also the leader in the movement that he calls Solartopia. Go to mothersforpeace.org if you want to get involved in this effort. Thank you very much, Harvey. Hey, thank you. And listen, if you want a piece of music, go to YouTube and look for Pete Seeger, Solartopia. Pete Seeger, I, I once approached Pete and asked him to write a song about Solartopia, and he did, for God's sakes. And it's on YouTube, and you could use the music. It's really cool. I want to thank our guests again, James Zogby and Harvey Washerman. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. Saturday, October 28th is Tort Law Education Day at the American Museum of Tort Law. Join Ralph Saturday, October 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern for the museum's free virtual panel. Go to tortmuseum.org to register. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. The next issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen is coming soon. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Hannah asks a question of Jim Zogby. Hannah? Just to that point briefly, I want to say it it is a little bit of a rhetorical mm-hmm. nitpick pet peeve of mine that when people say Jews and Arabs because Judaism is a religion and being Arab is a broad mm-hmm. ethnic category, um, <laughs> you know, as a, yeah. you know, it's... Are you- well, I am respectful of the fact that, number one, well, number one, that bigotry sees Jews as all one people, but it's true that at the same time, there has developed a mindset that I'm not going to argue with. I mean, if, if, if I have friends who are Jewish who say we are one people and that being Jewish is an ethnicity, I'm not going to challenge their self-definition. I'm not. I'm going to let them have their self-definition. I'm not going to argue with it. So I don't want to fall into the trap of denying them a privilege of defining themselves in the way I want to de- have the privilege of being able to define myself. And so I understand your concern, Hannah, and I, I would agree with it, but we've come down the road quite a ways And it's difficult to come back from that because, like I said, there are so many people I know in the Jewish community that I work with in the Jewish community who say to me, we're not just a religion, we're an an ethnic group. I know they're not an ethnic group. They have everything from converts who are whatever. Yeah, it. I my last name's Feldman. It's it's not some great reveal to say my Jewish heritage. I've had this discussion many times just to quickly get to a question, you know, Israel what a lot of, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is a lot of kind of the foundational, you know, settlers in Israel are of Ashkenazi Jews. They're right, right, right. identify as, as European. 
And the modern mm-hmm. state of Israel, you know, in sports and soccer, they play in UEFA. They don't play in the Asian football conference like a lot of other Middle Eastern nations. They don't play in the African conference. Oh, they do Eurovision. There seems to be a lot of affiliation with the modern state of Israel and European identity rather than identifying with their their neighbors in the region. So I'm curious if you think what I guess because you do a lot of public opinion polling, I'm curious if what you see, how you see that factoring into the situation. Israeli society is really complex. I mean, Russian Jews, for example, prefer to speak Russian. And then the, then the Ashkenazi Jews do have a European identity, and that's true. And then the, the Sephardic Jewry, who now call themselves Mizrahim, they, so they, they cut their Arab roots and they want to call themselves a different something, that's fine. They have a, a very different identity. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox, who are in a world all to themselves, and those four components really are quite distinct in the country. Given that, you know, I, I kind of don't know I mean, if Israel didn't have Arabs, I don't think that they stay together as a country. I mean, it would be, they're already, we're already seeing this conflict between the ultra-Orthodox on the one side and the secular on the other side. And there is a conflict between the Ashkenazi and the, 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 Eastern, the Eastern Jewish population. So there, there, are some, there are some real issues there. And I, and I think that, let me just say that one of the reasons why Israel doesn't participate in the Asian games has not to do with the fact of their self-identity as much as it is that nations from that region rejected their entry into the game. So Israel early on started going west instead of east. It wasn't just that they felt comfortable there. It's that they weren't being included because they were viewed as an outcast nation that had of, by countries that supported Palestinians. And that persists even till today. I mean, I think that Israel might have turned a corner had they behaved differently. But I dare say after what they're doing in Gaza, that they set themselves back a good decade. And yes, we do public opinion polling. In fact, we're in the region now polling in 12 countries. And we started the poll before this. But when it all started, I told my teams to stop. They were about halfway done. And give me the other half after, you know, like th- we, we paused for about three days and to see what the numbers then look like and compare. And I, I, I'm not going to put hard money on it, but I, I would bet that the numbers for Israel before are going to be radically different than the numbers after, and probably for the United States as well. But we'll see when the numbers do come out in about a month. Now, after Jim Zogby has left, Steve, Hannah, and Francesco have a less formal discussion about the Israeli-Gaza conflict. This yeah, is in huge contrast to the way radio is treating this war. Oh, it's including amazing. NPR. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing. You can't deal it's... with it without history. You got to have context. It's like saying, look at the horrible things the U.S. did against Dresden or whatever. Well, you know, you got to have history. You have to have context constantly. That doesn't exonerate anything. You can't lobotomize history and understand what's going on today. To put it in one sentence. Yeah, and there's like there there were some writer friends of mine who wanted the Writers Guild to put out a statement condemning. Hamas. And, you know, a few of us said, there's another part of this equation. I'm not going to sign it unless that's acknowledged. You know, I'll sign something that talks about a ceasefire, but I'm not going to sign something that just condemns Hamas, even though that was a barbarian act. It's just not, 
which is being uh, exceeded recognized. in barbarian acts many fold as we speak. Oh, even, you know, <laughs> that the hospital, it's amazing. I don't know. The hospital gets bombed and the Israelis are blaming a, another group in Gaza for possibly doing it. I mean, it doesn't make any well, sense. Well, they've been bombing clinics and hospitals in five wars, in schools and infrastructure right, but they, but they mean, were they were saying we didn't do it this and they weren't blaming hamas either they're blaming some other jihadist group yeah in gaza for it and it doesn't make any yeah. sense yeah apart from that look what they've done the rest of it of course yes i mean eight, you said days, I, yeah. i've repeated what you said last week about the 400 to 1 i mean that's you know, they tell the people to flee, and they, they strafe them. They, they, they've missiled them. They've killed 70 people already as of yeah. two days ago, fleeing. Anyway, if you want to condemn violence, you have to condemn all violence, period. Yeah. That's what Gandhi and Mandela, Martin Luther King, all of them. You can't yeah. start picking your poison. Yeah. Yeah, the thing I find really interesting, well, I'll say interesting for lack of a more precise word, but even Zogby did this. People talking about this is, you know, using the word but instead of the word and. This is terrible. And all this other stuff is also terrible. You know, like it, I think it's such a, it's missing from, to me, that's the thing that is missing from so much of the conversation is, is one does not diminish the other. They can both be true. Yeah. Yeah. And, By and the way, you know what the latest yeah. is in Israel? Listen to this one. A very ardent pro-scientist in the U.S., as I mentioned, went to Israel a few days ago. Yeah. He thinks that, look, we're talking about instant communication, video, and surveillance on that border by yeah. the Israelis. It took Netanyahu five hours to go on TV. It took the military not much less than that. Sure, they're over in the West Bank, but they had all kinds of soldiers. So this guy is basically saying that Netanyahu delayed in order to wipe out his opponent and the divisions on judiciary and unite the country behind him, which is what despots do all the time, you know. And then he did it, and it succeeded. He shut up everybody. All the reservists who didn't want to serve had to, you know, jump in and become active and so activated. So there's a lot more coming out here. The other thing is the, the Hamas fighters, nobody talks about them. First of all, they were after the soldiers there, and then they saw no resistance, so they started shooting up the villages and, the, and all the rest of it. But the point is, a lot of them had lost their family members in prior wars by Israel. Sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers. And they were on a suicide mission. As he's really said, they recovered 1,600 Hamas fighter bodies. They had a surprise element, and they had machine guns. And they suffered greater losses than their victims. Just to show you that it was a homicide-suicide mission Dr. by Dr. fighters who really weren't trained much at all to Dr. begin Dr. with. I wanted to ask you about this, Ralph, because I, I, I find it so strange that it, this hasn't gotten talked about at all uh, in terms of like a military operation, which I agree it, it very clearly was in terms of like who the targets were. And like, for instance, the rave, there's no way that Hamas could have known about that. You know, it was just this tragic accident that they were there on the day of yeah. the attack. And really the point of comparison to me is the, is the Tet offensive during Vietnam. And I, I just wanted to know what your view is on why it, it doesn't get framed in those terms at all. 
it's part of the dehumanization. You can't talk about Hamas other than saying terrorism, brutality, terrorism, brutality. So if you talk, even talk about the Hamas fighters, and many of them were just late teen and early 20s, you know that the New York Times has written about these young Palestinians who want to be martyrs, 14-year-old kids, 13-year-old kids, totally hopeless, totally suffocated, seeing death all around them, and they want to die. And that's why they'll take a knife and stab somebody. They know they're going to be killed. That's what Chris Hedges said. He said in one of his articles that they can't choose how to live, but they want to choose how to, at least they can choose how to die. Yeah. And someone made a comparison with Attica, the prison outbreak. It was yeah. a prison outbreak because they couldn't stand the way they were being suffocated and treated in jail. And they knew they were going to be killed, and they were killed. Yeah. That would change the dialogue a little bit. Yeah. Seymour Hirsch, in his latest article, where he's quoting some former Israeli insider, the article's point was that this is the end of Netanyahu. Yeah, after the hostilities, though. Nobody right. dares say anything. until, And he'll extend the hostilities to save his neck. The yeah. guy doesn't care. He'll, he'll provoke Hezbollah. He'll try to get anything going. Yeah. Bomb the Syrians again. Send a shell to Tehran. You know, this guy, his political survival under a corruption case that he's been fending off, criminal corruption case, this guy will bring down the temple. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and you've got Joe Biden having his back. I mean, it's like, you know, this giant country called the U.S. being a tail of Netanyahu and ready to have the taxpayer in the U.S. pay the bill. That's the amazing thing. The goal. One time Netanyahu was asked, you know, you should be the 51st state. You're so close to the U.S. He said, why do I want to be a 51st state? I got 100 votes already in the Senate. Ralph, to talk further on this, do you know Phyllis Bennis? She's yeah. A, yeah. IPS. Yeah, she may be somebody to talk to on this. I heard her talk on the FAIR podcast where she was likening Biden's Comments to Netanyahu as well. If it were me, I my reaction would be swift and overwhelming, decisive and overwhelming. And she likens that to what we did in 9-11. And, but then she goes on to say how that was a massive failure, too. Right. Yeah, and that right. Was, I thought that was an interesting insight about, yeah, quick, decisive, and overwhelming fails. Now, the Israelis have their jargon down, you know, and Congress parrots it. Civilians are getting killed because Hamas hides in civilian areas. Well, that's the nature of Gaza. <laughs> you know, yeah. they don't hide in hospitals, by the way, because yeah. they'd be completely driven out. I mean, their own relatives are sick there and are being right. injured. But obviously, you know, they live in the district. That's the nature of guerrilla warfare. What are they going to do? Go out in the in the arid parts of Gaza and fight F-16s and sophisticated missiles and naval bombardment. It's amazing the, the way these members of Congress just disgrace themselves. They're going to be looked very badly by historians, just the way the people have been in the past who were co-belligerents with savage situations. Again, have you ever heard a member of Congress say the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? Good heavens. No, I, I, all I heard was Kevin McCarthy repudiating Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian. Like, yeah. okay, Kevin McCarthy, if you were Palestinian, you wouldn't. And she put out a very pretty anodyne statement. It was yeah. uh, pretty balanced. And 
what Kevin McCarthy was trying to distract from their own speaker issues. But uh, it's like Kevin McCarthy, if you were Palestinian, what would you do? You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that, you know, it's just. And then you have the asymmetry of hundreds of times more innocent civilians being killed over the decades. And they want to take their land. There's, you know, they want to annex everything. It's not like, you know, they're, they're conceding anything. These right-wing zealots in Netanyahu's coalition, they're complete fascists. Yeah. Totally sadistic people. Yeah. It's like they have friends. Lindsey Graham said the other day, kill them all. Lindsey Graham said that? And, and a Senator Cotton, Harvard Law School, yeah. said, I wouldn't mind if Israeli made the rubble bounce. You know what that means? That yeah. means total devastation. Yeah. And, you know, that really worked in Vietnam. You know? It's, yeah, or it, it, a nuclear bomb makes the rubble bounce. Right. You know, yeah, that's, no. the, that's the phrase that's used yeah. in describing nuclear devastation. And now Harvey Wasserman has a lot more to say about nuclear power, not just what's going on in California, but across the country. We are in court, Ralph. We need the armies of lawyers and support for our experts. But everybody who's looked at the expert, with an expert eye at the metals, inside the, the, the two reactors at Diablo and all the other old reactors in this country, by the way, are terrified. I mean, there are cracks, there are pipes that aren't going to, that will shatter. The reactor pressure vessels are embrittled. This is a generic problem across the 94 reactors in the United States. We are playing, you know, Chernobyl roulette here and, and it is beyond dangerous. So, and people can contact me directly, Sowertopia at gmail.com. I will be glad to hear from you. I'll send you a free PDF of my people's spiral of U.S. history. But we've got to win this, Ralph. We've been winning for 50 years now. We've got to finally bury this industry as Germany has done. And very successful transition there. And we can do it here as soon as we get these reactors shut. Our listeners should be told that Harvey Wasserman has an open invitation for any pro-nuclear specialist or advocate to debate him. Absolutely. He's not, he's, and very few people obviously have taken him up on that. That's debate on the media or debate in auditoriums. Yes, I would gladly do that. And you'll be glad to know, Ralph, that I am actually featured in both of the major pro-nuclear films that have come out in the last decade. Oliver Stone has me in his ridiculous pro-nuclear film, and a, a guy named Robert Stone made, made one about 10 years ago called Pandora's Promise. I'm in both those films. I wish they would come in and <laughs> debate me. That would be really wonderful. Tell people about the evacuation plans around nuclear power plants that have to be filed in public libraries and that very few people know about. They had an evacuation plan within 10 miles of Indian Point. You can hardly get out of New York City at rush hour time. Imagine figuring out that. Elaborate that a bit. Well, there, there was a legal requirement that you could you were supposed to have a credible evacuation plan. We, we've tested it at Seabrook in New Hampshire, and we lost. Actually, we had the support of the governor of Massachusetts in federal court, and we had a similar case in Ohio with Richard Celeste when he was governor of Ohio, and the courts have not upheld the requirement, you know, they, they let the to have a credible evacuation plan. And in mo- virtually all the nuclear plants around the country, when they built them, they were supposedly out in rural areas. And of course, population is filled in. It is absolutely impossible to even think about an evacuation in the, in the case of a major 
nuclear disaster. And, you know, one of the great spokespeople now, Ralph, in favor of shutting down the global industry is Nato Khan, who was the prime minister of, of Japan when Fukushima happened. And, you know, he is basically saying, forget about it. They were actually very seriously contemplating trying to evacuate Tokyo with 15 million people. And we had this way back when in, in uh, Detroit in 1966, when the Fermi reactor was on the brink of a major explosion in Monroe, Michigan, home of George Custer, by the way. And they were actually thinking of trying to evacuate Detroit. There was a great book written about it called We Almost Lost Detroit. And we know that evacuation is impossible. Anybody sitting downwind of a nuclear power is, is basically dead meat. And as you say, Ralph, there's no insurance. I live in California now. I have I have a car. It has to be inspected. It has to be insured. And here we have these nuclear plants that don't have to be inspected and don't have to be insured. What is Gavin Newsom thinking? I mean, it, it, what he's thinking is this is a weapons industry and, and it has to be supported. Got nothing to do with climate. Got nothing to do with economics. The power of giant corporatism. Harvey, uh, I know people who are driving 40-year-old cars or older Members of the Corvair Club. <laughs> yes, I heard you once got a ride in a Corvair with a friend of mine. But, you know, <laughs> I, used, I used to have a Valiant. Now, I would drive a 40-year-old Valiant, but that, you know, that, that push-button uh, uh, transmission. But uh, other than that, uh, right. we had 30-year-old Volvos that we couldn't drive anymore. So, you know, come on. Sorry, just to okay. follow up. So would, the, would this solution then be there is significant embrittlement, then they'd have to shut it down. Is that? Yes. There's no alternative to shutting down an embrittled reactor. They have to be shut. And, and as I say, the average nuclear plant in the United States, 94 of them, the two new ones at Georgia would be an exception. But the average age of a nuclear power plant in the United States is 40 years old. And cracking and, and embrittlement and deterioration of all the uh, the uh, instrumentation is inevitable. You have to remember, this is hard to imagine, but you have to remember that most of the nuclear power plants in the United States are pre-digital. They were designed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s before computerization took hold. These are real, real dinosaurs. There's some of the uh, reactors, original instrumentation was done with vacuum tubes, for God's sakes. So, you know, th these things are just ridiculous. Also, the government regulator, when they issued these licenses, issued them for only 30 years. Yes. And there's been pressure by the industry to renew the licenses for many more years with support in Congress and in the White House and a lot of taxpayer subsidies, including in upstate New York. Yes. Uh, with well, the support of Andrew Cuomo. Yes, Andrew Cuomo did, in fact, eventually shut Indian Point, thank God. But the four reactors upstate, he took $7.5 billion from the public to keep these four reactors open, one of which is 50 years old on Lake Huron. I mean, it's just insane. And the only explanation for the deep attachment to these reactors is, has to come from the weapons industry. No, it is not in the interest of the utility companies to run these plants. The only thing they're doing is they're getting subsidies. And the only reason they're getting subsidies is because of the weapons industry. Makes no economic sense whatsoever. None of the utility companies are interested in having new nuclear plants in their area anymore. No. Because they and know they, what the problems are. Well, you got Bill Gates running off at the mouth here about these small reactors. He, we're seeing all the symptoms 
of the original nuclear power industry with the small reactors. They're rising in cost. They're getting longer. This is even before there's a working prototype. There's no working prototype for the small reactors, which they say will start coming online in, in 29 and 30, which is ridiculous. The schedules are slipping. The budgets are slipping. They, and even if one came on tomorrow, they can't compete with renewables. And they're all taxpayer guaranteed. Bill yes. Gates has a company promoting it, and he's one of the richest men in the world. And he's gone to Washington and got a taxpayer subsidy for yes, these uh, so-called smaller model nuclear plants, which have been ballyhooing for years without any result. No, they're, they're ridiculous. And in fact, one of them, uh, an early prototype, well, an early similar model at Santa Susana, north of L.A., already blew up. So this is not a, a good prospectus. And it's all, about, it's all about getting federal subsidies. The, a former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Allison McFarling, referred to the investments in the small reactors as, quote, dumb money. And, and you know, and, and it's only smart money because it's a, a fishing expedition for federal subsidies. The transition to a post-nuclear energy economy is incredibly efficient. And it is massively successful. And, uh, you know, California is the fifth largest economy in the world behind Germany, which is number four. And we are desperate to get we've stopped a lot of nuclear plants in California. We shut Humboldt, San Onofre, Rancho Seco. Diablo is the last, but Diablo is the most dangerous, surrounded by earthquakes directly upwind from Los Angeles and the Central Valley. So the mothersforpeace.org is the organization to contact, and we are fighting them tooth and nail. We Diablo Unit 1 is shut right now for refueling. We are desperate to keep it shut. And there is, Ralph, precedent. In 1992, the Yankee Row reactor was shut. And because of congressional pressure coming from our anti-nuclear movement, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission demanded that Yankee Row be inspected for embrittlement, exactly what we're asking for at Diablo Canyon. And the owner of Yankee Row wouldn't do it because they knew they were embrittled and they never reopened that reactor. So there is precedent on this embrittlement issue, and we have to, we have to win this. Diane Curran, the lawyer who won the Yankee Row case, in 1992, is now our attorney at Diablo Canyon. And people got to be aware of this. And, you know, a lot of leftist so-called progressives are buying this nonsense, utter insanity, that nuclear power can somehow help with the climate. Exactly the opposite is true. Nuclear reactors pour huge quantities of radiation and heat directly into the atmosphere. They're the worst thing you can possibly do on a warming planet, and people got to disabuse themselves of this nonsense. And our listeners should know that Diablo Canyon nuclear plants, owned by Pacific Gas and Electric, the biggest utility in California, can't get private insurance. They have no liability insurance because of the risk is so great. The private insurance companies say, we don't want to touch that. So the taxpayer, basically through the Price-Anderson Act that was passed years ago, is the guarantor is going to pay if there is, God forbid, a huge disaster, worse than Fukushima, because it's so close to Los Angeles. Tell our listeners, Harvey, why they should be concerned all over the country. There are at least 40 aging plants or more with this brittle problem, including in South Florida. Give us a geographic assessment here so that our listeners don't think it's just people in Southern California that should be concerned. Well, if you wanted to, to pick a spot in the United States where you could do the most possible damage, 
from a massive radiation release, it would be right at the Apple Canyon. It's in central California on the coast. A massive radioactive uh, accident at the Apple Canyon would send a lethal cloud all the way across the United States. And we have had experience with this. Both Fukushima and Chernobyl sent up radioactive clouds that were measured crossing the continent of the United States. There was milk that had to be discarded in New England from Chernobyl, for God's sakes. This is not a, some kind of, you know, radiation doesn't just stop at the border here. Diablo Canyon would irradiate the entire continental United States if, God forbid, there was a major accident there. And it is surrounded by earthquake faults. There are at least a dozen within 10-mile radius of Diablo Canyon, plus the San Andreas, which is about 45 miles away, which is half the distance of the earthquake that destroyed the Fukushima. It was about 90 miles from the seismic fault line that, that destroyed Fukushima. It's half that from the San Andreas Fault. Go to the other plants around the country. Give us. Well, a, there are 94 reactors a... in the United States, and they're spread around the United around the whole country. Think of Indian Point is shut right next to New York City, but of course they have radioactive water at Indian Point as well as at Pilgrim in, on Cape Cod Bay that they want to dump in, into the ocean and the river. It's insane. So you have a dozen reactors around Chicago. You've got one just south of Detroit. You've got the one in South Florida, Turkey Point, and St. Lucie surrounding Miami. It's a nightmare, Ralph. The reactors are everywhere. And until they're all shut down, we will not be safe. Yes, South Texas, not far from Houston. You know, pick a city, you've got a nuclear plant upwind that if it blows, Davis Bessie of Toledo and Perry Cleveland, you know, they're, they're, they're everywhere. And they're all nuclear weapons facilities. That is the mindset we now have to adopt with atomic power. Listeners should know that this is a dying civilian industry, that there's only been one nuclear plant opened since the 1970s, and it's in Georgia. And it, yes. the cost overrun was staggering. The two plants in Georgia kept tapping into the taxpayer out of Washington, and they cost $30 billion, which is three or more times what the original estimate was, not to mention many years' delay, and not to mention that the utility was allowed by the legislature in Georgia to charge residential ratepayers for these nuclear plants under construction without getting any electricity. Yeah. They were prepaying for the, the folly of the utility in Georgia, which was constantly lobbying successfully in Washington for streams of billions of dollars because of the cost overrun. Now, Obama did that. In 2007 and eight. Obama gave an interest-free loan, $8.3 billion to the Volcker plant, and then Trump threw in another 2.7. And the cost of the reactors, the two reactors, which will never, ever, ever in any way compete with renewables is now close to $40 billion. These are the two reactors, Volktel at Georgia. But the good news, Ralph, is that they are the last two reactors under construction in the United States. Unit 3 went online earlier this year. Unit 4 is scheduled for, uh, for next year. There are no commercial reactors under construction in the United States now. We have stopped this industry. They're talking about these small reactors, which is utterly ridiculous. They'll never be built. They'll never compete. You know, unfortunately... Oliver Stone has gone over to the dark side. But the good news, Ralph, is in the next five years, 
there are no commercial atomic reactors that are under construction because of the eff efficacy of the movement that you helped build in the 1970s. And if anybody is seriously talking about solving the global warming problem, the last thing you want to talk about is nuclear power. There aren't even any that can come online within the next five years. And meanwhile, renewables is just blasting ahead. And, and you know, if we can get batteries off of lithium and onto sodium, and make a couple of more small, uh, relatively small technical changes, we have all the renewable energy we could ever use. And the only thing propping up this industry, this nuclear power industry, is nuclear weapons. And people have to understand that. As you said, quote, I'm quoting you, the great irony is the solution for global warming is also the solution for the future of our economy, end quote. And you've coined this term, solartopia. You're very much identified as the lead solar-topian in the country. What do you mean by that? It means that we can have a completely renewable-based economy immediately. It's been available for decades. The, you know, the, the greatest mistake, the greatest industrial mistake made in the history of the United States was in the early 1950s, when there were breakthroughs in solar and when Harry Truman issued the Paley Commission saying a report saying there could be 15... One five million solar heated homes in the United States by 1975. This was in 1952. But Dwight Eisenhower intervened in December of 53 and gave a speech for the peaceful atom at the United States and put all the resources for our energy future into nuclear instead of into solar and wind. And, you know, that was the mistake that sent us down the road and towards nuclear and has made us continue to be dependent on fossil fuels. And that 1952 report also said that if the U.S. went solar, by 1975, three-quarters of all homes would be solarized. That's 1975. Absolutely. Now, Steve and Hannah have questions for Harvey Wasserman. Steve, your question? Yeah, Harvey, you've already kind of preempted it and touched on it, because I wanted to ask you, what is wrong with Oliver Stone? And if you did have a chance to debate him and, and the thrust of the theme of his movie... How would you refute it? Well, I think uh, Oliver Stone may have taken the brown acid that they warned about at, at Woodstock. And uh, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's now it's really, it's, you know, his film is absolutely one of the most dishonest pieces of corporate propaganda I've ever seen, completely ignoring all the findings on radiation and health. One thing he said that I, I just almost, I almost got thrown out of the theater, actually, was he said that the health, there are no health studies showing damage to children downwind from Chernobyl. Absolutely one of the most unconscionable lies ever told. And it's right there in Oliver Stone's film. He refused rightfully to trust the Warren Commission on the assassination of John Kennedy. But here he is listening to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is every bit as corrupt, saying these reactors are safe, which they absolutely are not. His film showed a complete lack of understanding of the issues of radiation and health, of economics, and pushing these new reactors, so-called small reactors, which will never work. They're already way, way, way more expensive than renewables. There's no reason to do it whatsoever unless you're building nuclear weapons. And so that's the hidden thing that nobody wants to talk about, about commercial. Well, the worst thing about his film, Steve, is he completely ignored 
that nuclear power can't be competitive at all with the renewable energy, solar energy, wind energy, not to mention conservation of energy like retrofitting buildings and creating jobs all over the country. It's totally out of the economic calculus cycle. He completely ignored that, as well as ignoring what happens if there's a meltdown in terms of protecting people, evacuating people, the health consequences of this. It's like nuclear power can never have an accident in the U.S., when, of course, there are a whole number of close calls in Pennsylvania and Detroit, as Harvey pointed out. Fortunately, his film did not attract much attention, even though it was promoted by economic interests that support nuclear power. Well, except for the 30 seconds that he gave me, it was incredibly boring. (laughs) I mean, it was really a dull film. Even I, who am ferociously committed on the issue, was falling asleep during this thing. So, And he comes on at the end as just kind of this avuncular Ronald Reagan type talking to these young people making these ridiculous new reactors. Uh, The bottom line, Ralph, is that you you were right 50 years ago. When we started with critical mass, we have had a miraculous technological explosion in renewable energy. And all that stands in the way now is these atomic reactors. And you watch, you watch Germany. The German economy is just going to boom now. You know, they, they got rid of their nuclear plants. They're phasing out their fossil fuels. They are booming ahead with renewables. You know, that's what we need to do in this country. And we can do it. We, we're, we're, we're losing here on all fronts. We have stopped them from building new nuclear plants, but we we need now to shut the old ones, which are incredibly dangerous. All right, let's let's go to Hannah. My question, I apologize because it it requires some, you know, kind of magical thinking. So you mentioned that part of recent efforts is, is that when Diablo Canyon is shut down temporarily, unfortunately, that that the campaign is to get at the very least to get the reactor inspected to check on embrittlement. And so let's say in our fantasy world where the inspection happens and it is competent and PG&E does something about it and is competent, PG&E are the kings of the unforced error of the own goals. What would effective retrofitting look like to make Diablo Canyon safer in terms of the embrittlement that you want inspected for? It's a very good question. Diablo Canyon and no other reactor in the United States can, in fact, be retrofitted to deal with embrittlement because it affects the very core of the reactor, the reactor pressure vessel, which is what contains the chain reaction. Those components are irreplaceable. There's no backup. One of the reasons it's so dangerous, a lot of the um, key facilities in a nuclear power plant are redundant. You have backups for various pieces of the safety chain in a nuclear reactor, but not for the reactor pressure vessel. There's only one. You cannot fix it, and you can barely replace it. The idea of replacing an embrittled reactor pressure vessel is virtually impossible. It could be done, I guess, technically, but really what it means is building a whole nuclear plant. You know, It's like changing the engine on an old gas car. You get to a certain point, you can't fix it. And so the reactor pressure vessels are not fixable. The average age among the 94 reactors in the United States is 40, 40 years old. Who do you know who's driving a 40-year-old car or operating a 40-year-old boat? I mean, or a 40-year-old airplane. These are old machines. They are decrepit. If it was a car, you wouldn't drive it. And, and they're not fixable. So, And we know that and they know that. 
That's why they wouldn't inspect Yankee Row in 1991, which was 30 years old at the time. Diablo Canyon now is 40 years old and much, much bigger and, you know, completely unfixable. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. The Huffington Post reports that the State Department has imposed a censorship regime directing high-level diplomats involved in Middle East affairs to refrain from using the following phrases, quote, de-escalation slash ceasefire, end to violence slash bloodshed, and restoring calm, end quote. This mirrors White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's response to a reporter's question during a recent briefing when she deemed calls for a ceasefire by progressives in Congress, quote, wrong, repugnant, and disgraceful, end quote. Rejecting this censorious framework, Rep. Jamal Bauman tweeted that, quote, official statement from his office is de-escalate, end the violence, restore calm. According to Semaphore, MSNBC has, quote-unquote, quietly pulled their Muslim anchors from the air, preventing them from covering the rapidly escalating situation in Gaza. Quote, the network did not air a scheduled Thursday night episode of the Mede Hassan show, reversed a plan for Ayman Mohadin to fill in this week for Joy Reid's 7 p.m. show, and the network also plans to have Alicia Menendez fill in for Ali Velshi, end quote. This piece goes on to quote from anonymous MSNBC sources who, quote, feel all three hosts have some of the deepest knowledge of the conflict, end quote. NBC denies this is an intentional and coordinated move, instead claiming these shifts are merely, quote, coincidental, quote. Meanwhile, MSNBC did prominently feature New York City Mayor Eric Adams making the extraordinarily dubious claim that, quote, the DSA and others were carrying swastikas and calling for the extermination of Jewish people, end quote. DSA members are now mulling a suit against the mayor for defamation, per city and state New York. The Intercept is out with a story about divisions within the liberal Zionist advocacy group J Street. Per the story, J Street is supporting a congressional resolution that, quote, pledges unconditional support to Israel's war in Gaza, end quote, which, quote, makes no mention of Palestinian civilians, end quote. In response, over a thousand former J Street staffers and representatives are urging the organization to join calls for a ceasefire. J Street's position mirrors that of many congressional progressives who have been hesitant to call for a ceasefire, even as the civilian death toll continues to mount. Law schools have become another major venue for conflict on this issue. The Jewish Law Students Association of the City University of New York has issued a statement expressing their, quote, uncompromising solidarity with the Palestinian people and their righteous struggle for self-determination, end quote, and noting that, quote, institutions like the UN have consistently demonstrated an unwillingness and or inability to hold Israel accountable over its blatant disregard for international law, end quote. Similar statements have come out of Harvard, Columbia, and NYU, leading top law firm Davis Polk to rescind job offers they had extended to students from these institutions per NBC. Some donors have also cut ties with Harvard over the statement, including the Wexner Foundation, founded by former Victoria's Secret CEO and close Epstein associate Leslie Wexner. The Washington Post reports Venezuela and the United States have reached a breakthrough agreement in which the U.S. will ease sanctions on the country's oil industry, and in exchange, the country will hold a competitive, internationally monitored presidential election next year. End quote. This agreement represents a win for both nations, with the Biden administration hoping it will ease oil and gas prices, while the Maduro administration will, at long last, 
have the opportunity to reaffirm its legitimacy following the Trump-backed coup attempt that began in 2019. Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has called on the full Senate to expel Senator Bob Menendez in New Jersey following his indictment on corruption charges and allegations by the Department of Justice that he was acting as an unregistered foreign agent. Fetterman's statement reads, quote, Senator Menendez should not be a U.S. senator. He should have been gone long ago. It is time for every one of my colleagues in the Senate to join me in expelling Senator Menendez. This is not a close call. End quote. This from The Hill. Negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP have broken down yet again, this time over two specific issues. The first, according to the LA Times, is the actor's demand for a 2% share of streaming revenue, or alternatively 57 cents per subscriber per year. The studios have called this an, quote, overreach, end quote, which would, quote, create an untenable economic burden, end quote. The other major point of contention is AI, with the studios, quote, continuing to demand consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise project, end quote, per deadline. Meanwhile, the Guild has lauded a new Senate bill, the No Fakes Act, which would, quote, prevent a person from producing or distributing an unauthorized AI-generated replica of an individual to perform in an audiovisual or sound recording without the consent of the individual being replicated, end quote. SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher said of the bill, quote, A performer's voice and their appearance are all part of their unique essence, and it's not okay when those are used without permission. Consent is key. End quote. Per deadline. Finally, The Guardian reports that Indian officials have approved a trial for sedition against renowned author Arundhati Roy concerning a 2010 speech she made on Kashmir. The article notes Reporters Without Borders has warned that, quote, Press freedom is in crisis, end quote, in India. Roy herself has been an outspoken critic of the rising tide of Hindu nationalism in India, which has earned her the ire of right-wing authoritarian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting with-